All right, good morning, everybody. Welcome back for hour number two of Christian Worldview with Dr. Tony Beam. We're very glad to uh, have you listening to the program today, and uh, we hope you're going to enjoy this second hour. All right, um, I've, I've been trying to gather some information about whether or not there's going to be another meeting for the library board. At, at present, it doesn't appear that there is. The March 27th meeting that I was talking about yesterday, uh, they actually had that on the 14th that Monday. And so from everything I can gather um, right now, there's not going to be another meeting. I, if I hear differently, I will let you know. So we are two weeks away, two weeks from today, his radio talk 919-897 will become a music format. And of course, this radio program, this program, uh, Christian Worldview with Dr. Tony Beam is going to be shifting over to online. Uh, got a website that is uh, getting close to being ready. And um, we're, we're going to have that up soon with some articles that I've written and also some instructions about how you can get the podcast that I'm going to be doing. Um, you can listen live from 730 to 830 for sure on YouTube and Facebook. And I'm working on a couple of other um, opportunities for you to do that as well. So uh, just a reminder, uh, the, the show's not going to go away. It's going to come back with a new name. It's going to be Truth in Politics and Culture with Dr. Tony Beam. And um, the website will be easy to find, drtonybeam.com, drtonybeam.com. And you can email me there. You'll be able to, I think the email address is info at drtonybeam.com. And so you can send me your thoughts. Um, I'll have my Twitter feed up there. I've got my I've got my Twitter feed reestablished. Uh, actually, put out a call for people to listen to the program this morning on Twitter early today before the show began. So I'll be tweeting from Vision 2024. Uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter, it's Beamer57. It's Tony Beam at Beamer57 is my Twitter is where you'll you'll find me on Twitter. Tony Beam at Beamer 5-7. Okay, um, this is from National Review today. It's coming from Brittany Bernstein. Hunter Biden, James Biden, Hallie Biden, and an unknown, and an unknown fourth Biden received a total of $1.3 million in payments from accounts related to the Biden family business associate Rob Walker in 2017, shortly after Walker received a $3 million wire from a Chinese energy company. So the question, you know, are the Bidens, have the Bidens benefited from a relationship with China? Well, I would have to call $1.3 million to be divided between one, two, three, four people. Actually, yeah, four people. Uh, seems to me that, that that's a that's a benefit. That would go down in my book as being a good thing. This is now coming out at the House Oversight Committee. James Comer revealed this yesterday. Comer said it is unclear what services were provided to obtain $1.3 million. The Oversight Committee is concerned about the national security implications resulting from President Biden's family receiving millions of dollars from foreign nationals, the chairman said. We will continue to follow the money trail and facts to determine if President Biden is compromised by his family's business schemes and if there is a national security threat. A memo that Comer released on Thursday was the first time Hallie Biden, the widow of Biden's late son, Beau Biden, had been connected to the Biden family business schemes. 
The subpoenaed bank records show that the State Energy HK Limited, a firm affiliated with CEFC China Energy, wired $3 million to Robinson Walker LLC on March 1, 2017, less than two months after then Vice President Joe Biden left office. The following day, Robinson Walker LLC wired $1.065 million to European Energy and Infrastructure Group Abu Dhabi, a company, uh, or rather it's in Abu Dhabi, a company associated with James Gilliar, another business partner to Hunter Biden, according to the memo. To the memo. So the money's been traced, in, in case you're, you kind of need a placard to kind of follow all this, the money came from an energy firm in China to Robinson Walker LLC, it was $3 million, and then $1.65 million Robinson Walker LLC wired to this European Energy and Infrastructure Group in Abu Dhabi, and that money went into the hands of James Gilliar, who's a business partner with Hunter Biden. The Biden family members and their companies began receiving incremental payments over a period of approximately three months. The recipients of the money included Hallie Biden, companies associated with Hunter Biden and James Biden, and an unknown bank account identified as Biden. So the unknown Biden account received $70,000 from Robinson Walker LLC between March and May of 2017, and that's coming from subpoenaed bank records. Robinson Walker LLC sent Hallie Biden $25,000 on March 20th, a month earlier, she received 10000 from Robinson Walker LLC shortly before it received the $3 million payment. At the time of the payments, Hallie Biden was dating Hunter Biden. The pair dated from 2016 to 2019 after Beau Biden's death from brain cancer in 2015. Meanwhile, an account belonging to Hunter Biden received $500,000 during that time frame, while an account belonging to James Biden received 360000 so we're actually being able now to track down specific amounts. You know, this is not shadowy stuff anymore. This is not, these are not things that don't have a paper trail. You've got payments of $3 million coming from this energy company to a company that transferred the money to the Bidens in incremental payments. Now, to me, that sounds like, I, I mean, I'm speculating, okay? I'm crossing over into speculation land here. But that sounds like what you would do if you were covering up or trying to make it not look like there was this huge balloon cash-out payment. If you're giving you know, 10000 here, 20000 there, and then ending up with a total amount that's a pretty hefty amount. Hunter Biden, a private citizen with every right to pursue his own business endeavors, joined several business partners in seeking a joint venture with a privately owned legitimate energy company in China, the spokesperson added. As part of that joint venture, Hunter received his portion of good faith seed funds, which he shared with his uncle, James Biden, and Hallie Biden, and whom he was with whom he was involved involved with at the time and sharing expenses. White House spokesman uh, Ian Sams also dismissed the latest reporting. 
quote, after a disgusting attack, lamenting that the president's deceased son, Beau, was never prosecuted while he was alive, Congressman Comer has now decided to go after Beau's widow. Instead of uh, bizarrely attacking the, the president's family, perhaps House Republicans should focus on working with the president to deliver results for American families on important priorities like lowering cost and strengthening health care. See, that's what you always do. You defer. That's a that's the oldest trick in the book. I mean, you when when something unse- unseemly or unsavory or under the table emerges, you don't talk about it. You change the subject. You talk about well, the American people. It's the important work that the president's doing for the American people must not be inhibited by these outrageous charges. Outrageous charges. Three million dollars. One point three million dollars coming into the hands of the Biden family from a Chinese energy company, and he's president of the United States, you don't think that might have some national security implications? And by the way, how did how did Hunter Biden and his business partners get involved in this Chinese company to start with? You think it might have something to do with the fact that his last name is Biden? So he's out there trading on his family's name while his dad is vice president, and then his, his and by the way, ethics people in the Obama administration went to uh, Joe Biden apparently and told him he needed to knock it off that this stuff didn't look good, and it doesn't look like they knocked it off. It looks like they ramped it up. So we'll see as more as this as this, as this information comes out. I'm not optimistic. Again, I'm telling you what's happening, the facts, as they come available. But if you're asking me if I'm optimistic that there's going to be some measure of accountability here for um, a relationship, the president of the United States, with a Chinese energy company, no. I, I don't think there's going to be any accountability. I, I think this will be they'll, – they'll scream about it. Uh, they'll talk about it. They'll issue a report. It'll go in some dusty folder, get sent to the archives, and that'll be the end of it. That's not the way it should be, but I'm saying that's the way it's likely to be. Kudos to North Hills Church over in Taylor's. Uh, they've got an event coming up that you need to know about, and you can be sure that I'm going to put this on my calendar. Uh, this is excellent. The The title of the event is Gender Confusion, A Collision of Worldviews. Join us as Dr. Nancy Piercy delivers three lectures that contrast the secular negative view of the human body with the Christian positive view of the body. She will discuss her book, Love Thy Body, Explore the Current Worldview. I've read that book, by the way. It's an excellent book. Uh, Explore the Current Worldview of Transgenderism, and she'll give a preview of her soon-to-be-released book, The Toxic War on Masculinity. Each session will include a Q&A. Nancy Piercy, in in case that name rings a bell, um, or it, it's um, the reason that it would ring a bell, is that she wrote the book, uh, How Now Shall We Live, with uh, Chuck Colson. So she was co-author. And then she came out with a book called, um, I think it's, what was the name? The Bot, not The Body. That was Chuck Colson. Uh, Total Truth, Total Truth's the name. That was a, a huge book. I used a lot of that in um, when I was teaching at North Greenville. Okay, um, 
talked about North Hills. Let me get back over here and talk a little bit about what the pandemic did for us in terms of education in this country. Uh, when th This is coming from Katrina Trinko today at the Daily Signal. When history looks back at 2023, the biggest American news story may be something that's getting little attention right now, and that's the school choice revolution. Uh, when you look at states across the country right now, there have been significant school choice um, move, movements that have happened in inv individual states, and that includes Iowa, Utah, and Arkansas. Uh, we talked about Arkansas earlier this week, but they passed massive school choice bills giving parents access to state education funding for their children and letting them decide if they want to use it at public or private schools. So let's review just a little bit, because Katrina does this today at Daily Signal. Let's look at what these states are doing. In Iowa, starting this fall, many families will be eligible to receive, listen to this, $7,598 per child to use toward private school of their choice, as well as other education expenses, such as tutoring, textbooks, curricular materials, online courses, and special needs therapy. In the fall of 2025, this will be available to all parents of school-aged children. Uh, now, so it's going to be universal. They're, they're going in a little bit at a time. And this is, this is in the state of Iowa. In Utah, legislators passed a bill funding $8,000 per student, assuming around 5,000 students enroll, toward private education, including private school tuition and homeschool expenses. And in Arkansas, parents will be able to get 90% of the money the state is spending per pupil in public schools and use it toward the education of their choice. Like Iowa, the program will be gradually rolled out, but by the 2025-26 school year, all school-aged children will be eligible. Now, those are three states that are doing this, in addition to Arizona and West Virginia, where thousands of children are already receiving funds to be used toward education of their parents' choice. Uh, now, Katie Hobbs is threatening the education savings account program, uh, despite having attended a private school herself. Katie Hobbs is the governor of Arizona. But right now in Arizona and West Virginia, these programs are in place. Meanwhile, state legislatures around the country are meeting right now. This is when most state legislatures, just like ours in South Carolina, are in session Eight more states, Alabama, Florida, Idaho, Indiana, Kansas, Louisiana, New Hampshire, and Texas are considering introducing or expanding access to education savings account. We're actually doing that here in South Carolina in this session as well. So, you know, this is, this is considerable. The pandemic ripped the facade down. The, the education world, the teachers' unions— had built this facade that, you know, was, look, everything's fine in education. Look at all the public schools. Look at all that we're able to do. Look at the money that's flowing. You know, always we need more money. We need more money. If we just have more money, we're going to have better teachers. We're going to have better um, outcomes from the classroom. And the truth is that all of that got torn down during the pandemic because as parents looked over their children's shoulder, while they were attending school virtually, they were shocked 
at what they were learning and perhaps even more shocked at what they were not learning. At the same time, the things that were being emphasized at the expense of other things and the quality of the teaching that they were getting. Now, let me hasten to say that there are a lot of good quality teachers in the education system. There are. Many of them have their hands tied because of the bureaucracy that accompanies a lot of these states where they're given curriculum uh, limitations, they're told that they have to teach a certain way, certain things have to be taught, so they're being taught toward a test outcome because that's how money flows and whether or not a school district gets taken over by the state or not or whether it gets graded down or graded up, all of that is related to test scores. And so some of these teachers are pressured, the good teachers, to teach toward the test scores. But as all this started coming out in the pandemic, parents were appalled. It, it, it influenced a, a, a governor's election in Virginia. Um, it influenced a lot of races because they, a lot of parents, a lot of just everyday folks said, you know what, I'm going to have to get out here. I don't want to have to do this. I, it, I'm not a public speaker, but I'm going to run for school board because this stuff has got to stop. And then a lot of legislatures across the country began to hear from, the, from their constituents. They wanted more control over their students' education. Parents wanted to be the deciders. You remember when George W. Bush got one day said he was the decider as president of the United States? And he got, he got attacked by the media for saying that, which is ridiculous because the commander-in-chief of the country and the president of the United States is pretty much the decider. That's why we put him in office. So parents want to be the deciders about what kind of future their children have based on the education they're getting now. And when parents saw through the pandemic that the education they were getting, getting was substandard, then they started demanding their legislatures give them choices. And that's what's happening. Um, legislatures are giving cho choices to, to parents in the states that I mentioned. Arkansas is one of the, I mean, 90% of every dollar that goes into education is going to be available for families to decide where their kids want to go to school. You think that's going to radically transform the quality of education in Arkansas? Of course it is. Competition works. When you don't have to compete with school other schools for students, then the, the motivation for you to be excellent at what you do is turned down. Now, again, there are good administrators and good teachers that go out and do their job every day because they sense of how important it is that our children have a good education. I don't want to pretend that that's not true. Uh, but as a whole, again, even the good teachers have their hands tied often by curriculum requirements, by teaching requirements, interjecting a whole bunch of stuff, a lot of diversity into the school system that has nothing to do with the outcome of whether our students can read, whether they can do math, and whether they can spell or whether they can communicate. I mean, the things that are important for them to learn. Math, science, reading, those ought to be at the top of the list. And too often they get pushed down the list by diversity considerations. So 
this could be the year. As we look back, it could be the year that we see tremendous change in education, which is sorely needed. If you look at, at polling data that's available, there's broad bipartisan support for school choice. While the corporate media might sneer at Americans' concern about what their children are learning in public schools, it turns out interest in school choice unites Democrats and Republicans. Ask about giving parents the right to use the tax dollars designated for their child's education to send their child to the public or private school which is which serves their needs. 68% of Democrats, 82% of Republicans said they supported it. That's a poll that was conducted by the American Federation for Children 2022. Now, do, do, you, do you know why that's true? Because when it comes to what's best for our children, Democrats and Republicans can see the same thing pretty clearly. They realize that they're not getting the best and they demand the best for their children and that involves school choice. I'm hopeful we can get that accomplished here in South Carolina and join these other states that are marching toward giving parents more influence over their, their children's future. Okay, we had this discussion earlier in the program today. Um, above the fold on the front page of the Greenville News today is this headline, Library Board Hears Public Outcry. And the paper's dated today, March 17th, Friday, and this is what the story says from Claire Amari. In a forceful rebuke, now I want you to pay attention to this language because, again, this is, this is intimidating language. This is, if you're on the library board and you don't line up with the LGBTQ plus agenda, this, this is where you, you understand we're making strong statements against you today. Here's, here it is, first paragraph. In a forceful rebuke to the Greenville County Library System's embattled Board of Trustees. They, yes, they're in, if you're embattled, that means you're embroiled in controversy. That means that people are coming at you from every side. Nearly a dozen people spoke out Tuesday night against the board's anti-LGBTQ plus rhetoric and proposals, citing hateful and transphobic language and calling for the removal of three trustees. All they've said is that material that is sexually explicit, transgender, same-sex, sexual material belongs in the adult section of the library, not in the children's section. Can we have a moment here of just common sense? You don't put that kind of information in front of children. If you're going to have it in the library, put it in the adult section so that hopefully responsible adults can make decisions about what is going to be allowed to be put in front of their children but it doesn't need to be in a place where a child can walk a minor can walk in the library and pick up a book filled with pictures that they can't show on the six o'clock news stan juvelakis is with us he's a greenville county councilman uh good morning stan good morning dr bean how are you sir Doing fantastic, and I just want to say it's great to be in Greenville, South Carolina, one of the greatest places, greatest counties in America, as well as this great state of South Carolina, and I appreciate what you do and uh, uh, helping our listeners understand the real issues. Well, I, I'm really concerned about this because, I mean, again, I've been talking about this this morning from just purely a common sense standpoint. This committee, the library board, 
it they voted to advance and recommend to the full committee that these materials that are LGBTQ plus explicit not be available for children. They're not saying burn the materials. They're not saying burn down the library. They're not saying take the materials and put them in the storage room under lock and key. They're simply saying this is material that should only be available in the adult section so that minors going through don't pick up this material when they're not age-appropriate, ready to understand its its content. Yeah, so, Dr. Mayne, first of all, what you're saying is exactly right. And number one is for, let, let's just let's look at the total situation in our meeting the other day. We have 550,000 citizens in Greenville County. Okay, we had a group of maybe 30, 40, 50. Okay, so that's not a true representative of all our 550,000 citizens. Okay, in Greenville County, but number one, it's real simple. It's not. It's not really about a group or anybody we're looking at. It's real simple. Pornographic materials don't belong in children's section in Greenville County. They do not belong. You cannot go in your convenience store without having them covered up. You can't look at them in a convenience store. You can't. You shouldn't be able to look at them in the children's section in the Greenville County libraries. They need to be put in, a, in the adult section, and they need to be labeled. I would even say they need to be labeled pornographic because it is horrible what you see. For the, for the listeners out there, who are not have not seen these books? They are graphic cartoons, right. or uh, you know, they are graphic, and they show everything you could imagine. That's they right. do not belong in our children's section in the Greenville County Library System. Put them in the put them in the adult section. I'm not telling you to burn them. I'm not telling you we can't have them. I'm telling you, I, I'd like to tell you that really, but I'm not going to be able to say that. Obviously, in a day's time. What I do want to say, put them in the adult section and get them out of the kids' section. And the library board, I support 100% what they're doing, and I'm grateful for their efforts. I know they're being hollered at a lot of different ways right now, and, and they've been poked at in a lot of different ways, but they are doing the right thing for Greenville County. We have people coming from all over the world to come and live in Greenville County. They come here because it's a better place. That's right. And we do have values. We do have traditional values. We do have family values. We do love Jesus Christ in Greenville County. Well, let That's me, who we are. Let me ask you this. What is the end result here? Will the library committee bring a report to the, to the Greenville County um, Council, and the council will make the final decision? Or does the library, once the library committee votes finally, uh, this action will take place without county council? Well, so, so county council funds or, or, or approves the budgets, and grant, uh, county council um, chooses, goes through, you know, the committees, and we, we appoint the board members. Okay, but what we do not, as of right now, micromanage what they do and can't do. Right. But, but at some point, if, if, if it doesn't go the way council, the 12 members of council like, then we can obviously, you know, step in and do some, uh, you know, potential other measures, whatever council deems, you know, needs 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 to be done. Well, so they won't. So, so to answer that question, I guess more clearly, they won't necessarily have to come to us and say, "This is what they've done. Are you okay with it?" 
That's right. not the case. Right. Well, and th- look, I, I I agree with that, actually. I mean, county council can't be concerned with every single issue in Greenville County. They have to delegate different boards and agencies to be able to say grace over their responsibilities and then give them the power to do so. But, I, you know, it's just the attack that's coming against this library board. Um, it, it's almost like there needs to be some kind of statement of support issued, and, and I don't know that that's the thing to do. I just feel when this is the second time this week that I've picked up a copy of the Greenville, Greenville News, and on the cover is pretty much an all-out attack against the work of this committee. They're trying to bully them into going away from moving these books out of the children's section. And, and again, I'm like you. I, you know, I, I want to be, I even want my voice to reflect the fact that it's just merely a common sense approach here because, and, and I think you're right. I think most people in Greenville don't know what these books have. And I, I, I would just say to you that within the confines of this radio show and decorum and morality, I can't describe, I'm not even going to describe to you what's in the books in picture form but i'm just going to tell you it's sexually explicit as as sexually yeah. explicit as you find anywhere yes yeah, it's, it's horrible as a matter of fact i had a book that i saw the first time i saw the book somebody brought it to the county council meeting i walked around with it and opened it up and showed other council members and immediately just turned their heads couldn't believe it and um i, I and I, look I, I just think it's, it's just got to be moved it's horrible and I, I'll just say this, I, I, as speaking from Stan Juvelakis, yeah. District 22, who I'm elected, I'm not speaking for all the council. I, I, you're going to have to each ask each council member how they, how they view what we're talking about. But I'll tell you this, from my view, it needs to be moved. They need to not be in the kids' children's section. It is not good for Greenville County. It's not good for our kids. That's not what I looked at as a kid. That's not what you probably looked at as a kid. It wasn't in the library section then. It shouldn't be allowed in the library section now. I, I, it just should not be, and it needs to go to the adult section. And I support our Greenville County uh, um, um, Library Board, library board yeah. for their efforts they are doing, and I applaud them. And I was to tell them to continue to fight to keep uh, pornographic books out of the children's section. Thank you, Councilman Juvelakis. Appreciate you taking some time on us today. God bless you. Have a good day. Thank you, sir. You have a great day. Okay, we're two weeks away from the end of his radio talk. 919-897 is a talk format. Uh, music will be filling these frequencies beginning on April 1st. Um, and then April 3rd, April 1st is a Saturday. March 31st is a Friday. So two weeks from today, we'll, we'll retire this show. And April 3rd, a new show called uh, Truth in Politics and Culture will be out there, and um, I'm the host of that. You'll be able to pick it up online. You'll be able to listen live 7.30 to 8.30, certainly through Facebook Live and likely on YouTube. Uh, um, And and I'm working on some other things. Gary's got the website pulled up there. There's my – they even managed to make me look good in that picture. I mean, that's a pretty incredible job there. But Truth and Politics and Culture will debut Monday, um, uh, April 3rd. 
and we'll have shows available for you. Like I said, live, you can download the podcast for free. You'll be able to do that anywhere you get podcasts, but you can also uh, download it on the website. You can subscribe to it there. So um, assuming that I get all this done between now and two weeks from now, another piece of information that you need to know, gender confusion, a collision of worldviews, Nancy Piercy is coming to North Hills Church. That's going to be the topic of her discussion for Friday night, April 21st, 6.30 to 8.30, and then Saturday, April 22nd, 9 to 12. It's at uh, 4592 Edwards Road in Taylor's, and you can, I'm sure you can go to North Hills Church re- uh, website and register for this. There's a QR code there that uh, will let you register. You can uh, join us, it says, as Dr. Nancy Piercy delivers three lectures that contrast the secular negative view of the human body with the Christian positive view of the body. She will discuss her book, Love Thy Body, explore the current worldview of transgenderism, and give us a preview of her soon-to-be-released book, The Toxic War on Masculinity. Each session will include a Q&A. So uh, Nancy Piercy, you may remember her name. She co-authored the book, How Now Shall We Live?, with Chuck Colson and her book, Total Truth, I believe was a bestseller. Um, Love Thy Body is a great book if you haven't gotten it. Uh, it's about um, sexual issues and what the Bible has to say about the body um, and about how we're to live in this life. So anyway, uh, check them out. A great commentary today by Victor Davis Hanson <clears throat> over at The Daily Signal. And I think I'm just going to read through this and maybe comment on it as we go, because he's comparing the fall of Constantinople, uh, which took place on March, or rather May 29th, 1453, uh, with where we are in America today. You know, a lot of people look at the Roman Empire and they say, well, the destruction of the Roman Empire, look at all the symptoms. Yeah, well, the Byzantine Empire represented by Constantinople, lasted for a thousand years beyond the Roman Empire. So, you know, if, we, if we're going to emulate something, you know, I'd, I'd like to get the extra thousand years, okay, out of our civilization. But as, as the Byzantine Empire began to crumble, then its, its downfall came, as I said, on May 29, 1453, and we're going to explore some of the things that led to that. But let's talk about why the Byzantine Empire, first of all, was able to maintain its dominance for a thousand years beyond the fall of Rome. Always outnumbered in a sea of enemies, the Byzantine survival had depended on its realist diplomacy of dividing its enemies, avoiding military quagmires, and ensuring constant deterrence. Generations of self-sacrifice ensured ample investment for infrastructure. Each generation inherited and improved on singular aqueducts and cisterns, sewer systems, and the most complex and formidable city fortifications in the world. Okay, now you, you understand what we're talking about here. Let's translate that into today's parlance, okay? Uh, they had... They invested in a strong infrastructure, not only in the sewer system and the aqueduct system, but they also invested in the infrastructure of the interconnectedness of their culture, how they all agreed on what was right, how they had a a common interest in defending 
themselves from their enemies that surrounded them. And they built a strong defense. You know, they had the most formidable city fortifications in the world. That translates today into strong national defense, knowing what the capabilities of the enemies of the enemy are, and being able to counter those capabilities with your defensive capabilities and even your offensive weapons. So I'm going to pick back up reading again. Hansen says, Brilliant scientific advancement and engineering gave the empire advantages such as swift galleys and flamethrowers, an ancient precursor to napalm. I mean, they, they, they came up with a way to throw fire in the, as, a, as a military deterrence. Um, their galleys, their, their ships were faster than their enemies. They were able to outmaneuver them. The law reigned supreme for nearly a millennium after the emperor Justinian codified a prior thousand years of Roman jurisprudence. Yet this millennium-old crown jewel of the ancient world, once home to 800,000 citizens, had only 50,000 inhabitants left in the city when it fell. There were only 7,000 defenders on the walls. The Turkish army, the Ottomans that invaded, had 150,000 attackers. The Islamic winners took over the once magical city of Constantine and renamed it Istanbul. It had been the home of the renowned Santa Sophia, the largest Christian church in the world for over 900 years. Almost immediately, this church of, of the holy wisdom was converted into what was then the largest mosque in the Islamic world with minarets to follow. So what happened to this fortress city? What happened to this magnificent people? Christendom had cannibalized itself. Western Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy fought endlessly. Westerners often hated each other more than they did their common enemy. Anybody picking up on some similarities here? In the final days of Constantinople, almost no help was sent from Western Europe to the besieged city. In fact, 250 years earlier, the Western Franks of the Fourth Crusade had detoured from the Holy Land to storm the supposedly allied Christian city of Constantinople. Then they ransacked it and hijacked the Byzantine Empire for a half century. Constantinople never quite recovered. So this wasn't marauding Turks that came in to take over. This was pe these were people who were supposed to be on a crusade to rid the Holy Land of Islamic influence, and they detoured and took on Constantinople. Why? Because of the division between Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy that rose in Constantinople. And a lot of that was rooted in the fact that Eastern Orthodox didn't want to follow the Pope. The 14th century Black Plague killed tens of thousands of Byzantines and scared thousands more into moving out of the, of the cramped city. But the aging and dying empire battled more than the challenges of internal divisions or an unforeseen but de deadly pandemic and the empire's disastrous response to it. The last generations of Byzantines had inherited a global reputation and standard of living that they themselves no longer earned. They neglected their former civic values and fought endless battles over obscure religious texts, doctrines, and vocabulary. They did not expand their anemic army or navy. They didn't reunite their scattered Greek-speaking empire. 
they didn't properly maintain their once life-giving walls. Instead of earning money through their accustomed nonstop trade, the Byzantines inflated their currency and were forced to melt down the city's inherited gold and silver structures uh, or fixtures. Look, we're do- that's what we're doing. We're not melting down gold and silver, but we're printing money rather than earning or increasing the wealth of America, we're increasing our debt. That's what the Byzantines did. The once canny and shrewd Byzantines grew smug and naive. Childlessness became common. You know, you, you realize how, how childless our society is? We don't have a replacement rate. We're just below the replacement rate for our current population in terms of having children. Um, Meanwhile, they underestimated the growing power of the Ottomans who systematically pruned away their empire. By the mid-15th century, Islamic armies were ready to exploit fatal Byzantine weaknesses. The Sultan Mehmed II grandly announced that the Ottomans were now the real and only world power. Ascendant Ottoman armies would eventually move to the very gates of Vienna in an effort to rule all the lands of the ancient Roman Empire. Nowhere is it foreordained that America has a birthright to remain the world's preeminent civilization. As ascendant China seems eerily similar to the Ottomans, Beijing believes that the United States is decadent, undeserving of its affluence, living beyond its means on the fumes of the past, and very soon vulnerable enough to challenge openly. Left and right seem to hate each other more than they do their common enemies. Like the Byzantines, Americans gave up defending their own borders and simply shrugged as millions overran them as they pleased. Our once iconic downtowns, like in-stage Constantinople before the fall, are now dirty, half-deserted, dangerous, and dysfunctional. America prints money rather than making money as its banks totter near bankruptcy. The Byzantines did not wake up in time to understand what they had become. The question is, will we in America, in our culture, will enough people wake up, hear the call to take strong stands to reclaim what it is that makes America great? And if we do, we can survive another thousand years. If we don't, time will tell. That's all the time we've got for this Friday. I hope to see you in Charleston this weekend down at the Charleston Event Center for Vision 2024. Go to palmettafamily.org to get your ticket. It's not too late. Come on down and join us. I'll see you back on Monday.